You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. It's a great honor for me to have as my guest today, distinguished master of sport of the USSR, three-time Olympic hockey champion in 72, 76, and 84, multiple winner of World Ice Hockey Championships and recipient of the Greatest Hockey Player of the 20th Century Award from the International Ice Hockey Federation in 2001, head of an International Sports Academy Foundation, President of the Russian Ice Hockey Federation, first Deputy Chairman of the State Duma Committee on Physical Education, Sports and Youth Affairs, and Chairman of the Russia-Canada Friendship Association. We're talking, of course, about my dear friend and colleague, Vladislav Tretyak. Hello, Vladislav. Yes, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, I don't know, good morning for some. Uh, good to see and hear you all. Yes, it's morning for us, daytime for you. Let me start by saying many people on this side of the ocean call you the Russian wall for obvious reasons. I've heard, Vladislav, that as a child, you were an avid athlete able to master every sport you engaged in. And we're talking about swimming, diving, gymnastics, acrobatics, and hockey, of course. How is it that hockey became the central passion of your life? Well, my family was military, my dad was a pilot, and my mom played Russian hockey. Russian hockey, it's bandy. So she was also a teacher at school, uh, so she and uh, my father paid a lot of attention to me and my brother in the family, doing fitness and sports, and I was doing really well. I was skating and skiing, swimming and diving, but uh, hockey is the national game, and our hockey players were multiple world champions, Olympic champions, so everybody dreamt of being an astronaut or a hockey player. So in the 60s, especially after 1964, basically every one of us wanted to be a hockey player. So I was playing in the street and I wanted to be a hockey player like our famous champions. I've heard that when you were young, your father disapproved of your decision to play hockey, supposedly claiming that a hockey player with a stick is like a janitor with a broom. Is there some truth to that? Is that merely a rumor? That's true. He wanted me to be a pilot and he didn't like big sports at all. He just, uh, he was into fitness himself. He worked out in the morning. He was an example to us. He went skiing, but he didn't like big sports. And that's why he was always checking my weekly school progress report to see how I was doing in order to get good grades to get into flying school. But you see how it turned out with hockey. When I started bringing money home at 15, he said, well, that's not bad already. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it turns out there were some advantages to playing hockey. Who do you think made the biggest impact on your athletic career? Was it your parents, a coach, the environment you were in, friends? What would you answer? The first ones, of course, were my mother and friends. Because my mother definitely wanted me to be an athlete, she brought me to the hockey classes of the CSKA club. And also my friends at school, we all played hockey in the Golden Puck tournament as well as playing soccer. Anyway, we all cheered for sports for the CSKA team, and of course we all dreamt of playing for that team. 
And would you please recount the beautiful story of your acquaintance with your lovely wife, Tatiana? We heard you tell it at the ambassador's lunch recently. Could you please retell it for our listeners? Well, at the age of 20, I was already an Olympic champion and a world champion. I was very popular in our country. I was on the covers of practically all magazines, used to get about 50 letters a day from girls who wanted to meet me. I had phone calls at home, so in short, I had no problems meeting girls. <laughs> then my mother's friend told her that there was this very beautiful girl, a natural blonde, so shapely, beautiful, who would be a good match for her boy. Well, I thought, all right, I will call her up. So I did. She lived in the countryside, 70 kilometers outside of Moscow. So she came to the train station. I also came to the station after practice, and she was 40 minutes late. Actually, all her life, she is always late for events. Well, I waited for her. Well, then, when she came up to me, when I laid my eyes on her, I just fell in love at first sight. Then I had to leave in 10 days. In five days, I had to go to a training camp in Germany, in East Germany. It was the GDR back then. And we had a training camp there, special practice sessions. That was on the 5th of July, and there were other people running after her, so I had some competition there. But I like to win, like to win in competitions. <laughs> Sounds like an excellent incentive. Yep, I had incentive. And I told my father that I had fallen in love, that there I was about to leave and I wanted to propose and get married. He said, yes, let's go. We bought the rings in a shop. We didn't even know what size to get. So we drove to the town out there where she lived. I came up to her outside while my dad went inside to meet the family, where her dad was a pilot there too. They somehow hit it off there, sat down at the table and were waiting for us. So I told Tatiana, Tanya, how about us getting married? She said, well, I haven't fallen in love with you yet. It's been only five days after all. Let's hang out first. <laughs> she wanted to get to know you a bit at least. Yep, I fell in love, but she didn't. And then when we came into the table, my father said so sternly, well, now that we came all the way here, go on, say it. I said, here we go. I would like to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. Her father says, I know Vladislav, he's a good guy, and that was it. We raised the champagne glasses, got engaged, and on August the 23rd, we celebrated the wedding. The day after tomorrow, it will be 49 years since we have been together. Well, that is fabulous. Congratulations to you both. Next year, I have two big anniversaries, three anniversaries, three. I will turn 70. It will be 50 years since Canada-Russia, and actually 50 years of marriage. Lots of celebrations. By the way, they have already sent a letter from Canada. They are going to shoot a film, a documentary about the 72 series by a big Canadian company. Excellent. We'll look forward to seeing it. Well, as long as we're on the subject, we all know that in 1972, at the age of 20, you took part in the legendary series, which we call today the 1972 Super Series. Do you remember your initial impressions from the visit to Canada in the 70s? What do you remember the most? Tell us a little about the series, about coming to Canada, how you were received, where did you stay? What were your general impressions of Canada at the time? 
Well, we had already been world and Olympic champions more than once, but there was also this hockey overseas, North America's NHL. So our managers and our coaches and we ourselves wanted to find out who was the strongest and which hockey was better. So I think they agreed that there would be eight games, four in Canada and four in the Soviet Union. So we flew on an Illusion IL-62, flew to Montreal, and for the first time in my life, I got my passport stamped, all of us. They checked it right on board of the plane, never done that after that. When we looked through the window of the plane, there was a police escort, as they would receive presidents. There was a bus with flags of Canada and the Soviet Union. The police escort took our bus to Elizabeth Queen, which is a hotel in Montreal. We arrived, and there was the statue of Canadian and Russian players, the symbol of these matches, made of ice. We thought we were not sure how we will play, but the reception was already very good. They served a great dinner to us, but the Canadians didn't say hello to us. The Canadians didn't look in our direction. They were having fun. For them, it was some kind of celebration, and they didn't understand what awaited them in two days later. They thought we were an easy walk for them, and of course, the first game, Prime Minister Trudeau was there, Canadian flags, anthems. The atmosphere was very festive. Well, everybody was anticipating that the Canadians would beat us with a score like uh, by 12 goals, by as many as they wanted. They would even beat us so badly that there would be no one left on the rink in the second period, that they were as strong as bulls and we were as weak as sheep. But it didn't happen, and you know the result of that game. We won with a score of 7-3, and it was a revolution in big sport, in big hockey, that in the first game, the Europeans showed that they also knew how to play hockey. What do you think made the Soviet team so successful that they were able to win the first match 7-3? I think it's the coach, uh, the training, uh, Tarasov, Chernyshov, uh, these famous coaches of ours, and of course the surroundings. We lived at the training camp for nine months, about eight months a year. We practically rarely saw our families. I haven't celebrated the new year in my country for 17 years. We had everything dedicated to the training camp. We lived specially at the training camp. We were not often allowed to go home. So for birthdays and New New Year's Eve, we were all somewhere in the camp. That's why our build-up was very strong. And thanks to such conditioning, discipline, hard work by the guys and talent, of course, we were able to achieve such successes. What surprised you the most about the Canadian style of play? Was there anything new for you? Of course there were new things. Uh, Why? Uh, Because, first of all, the rink. The rink was much smaller than our rinks. In our case, you could run away from a very aggressive player. Not here. It's like a mousetrap. And Canadians are used to power play, and it's easy for them. They've played on these rinks all their lives. While for us, it was very hard to get used to it. And the first minutes, of course, were we were in shock because there were such attacks on my goal and the crowd of 18,000. We don't have arenas like that. So this whole atmosphere, the organ music, when the first one slipped past me, Phil Esposito came up to me, it's all right, kid, you have everything ahead of you. And they played Moscow nights, and uh, when the second puck was fired past me, they played the funeral march. <laughs> what the? Ha <laughs> ha, take that, you Russians. 
Yes, the situation was rather challenging and of course it was astonishing to feel such pressure, how the fans are rooting for their team, this whole atmosphere was quite tough. But we had leaders on our team who could turn it around and we knew we represented the whole of Europe and 250 million Soviet people. So at this difficult moment we were able to pull together, through discipline, skating, we brought the first period to a 2-2 score. Do you remember there was a journalist, his name was Dick Beddoes from the Toronto Globe and Mail, who said at the start of the series that he would eat his article if the Canadians failed to win every single match. After the defeat of the Canadians in the first match, it is said, he came to your hotel and fulfilled his promise, eating his newspaper article while dipping it in broth. Do you recall this incident? incident. Yes, I remember we were told after the first game that there was this journalist. He was a true professional. He did write a lot and wrote many compliments about his team. And basically he wrote nothing about us. He wrote that we were very weak and that he was sure that the Canadian team would take us to the cleaners in all eight of our games. There were even a draw if our team played a draw in any of the eight games. He would eat an article that he wrote about these games. So when we went from Montreal to Toronto for the next game, we went out to practice in the morning. It was a sunny day, and so there were a lot of correspondents, journalists, and they brought out a small table for him with like a borscht or broth, I don't know, and this newspaper. So he came up and he congratulated us on a good game, saying, I didn't know you played so well. So you pulled off a miracle. You beat us, our best players, NHL stars. So I recognize you win. And you're going to sprinkle some of this paper in the borscht or broth. I don't know what that was. So our coach, however, said, no, it's too weird. We forgive you and said that we also knew how to play hockey. He said, no, I have to keep my promise. So we threw it in small crumbs and he ate it. Good for him. He kept his promise. He's a man of his word. <laughs> Well, there you have it. That's a fabulous story. Thanks for sharing. What else do you recall about the games? There were a total of eight, right? Do you remember any scary or interesting moments on the ice, perhaps in Canada, perhaps in the Soviet Union? Well, then in Canada, there was certainly an interesting moment when in Vancouver, we beat the all-star team, I think scoring 5-2 or 5-3. Then Phil Esposito gave the last interview there. It just said that we, we were told that they were against a weak opponent, unlike them who skate like gods. And he was very upset when the Canadian crowd, because after we scored the fifth goal in Vancouver, all the Canadian fans whistled. But we, he said, had just come back from the holidays. We wanted to play. We played in different clubs in the US, in Canada. We all came to defend our colors, but the fans gave up on us and booed us, and he was very annoyed. He said that we would show good hockey in Russia for sure. But then in Russia, in the Soviet Union, they really pulled off a miracle. I think only God helped them to win because we were leading in the last period 5-3 in the last game and we totally owned the puck 30 seconds before the final whistle. We could have just frozen it. And since we rolled in more pucks than them, then we would have won the series. But here was this tricky pass, which Vasiliev started making through center ice. Just freeze the puck. And there he was, Ivan Kournoyer, stealing this puck. I can still totally picture it. And Paul Henderson, lucky man, he fell down and laid behind my goal. Everyone forgot about him. They dished it to him. 
he fired a shot at me, I made a save, and then he potted the rebound, which was the golden goal and basically went down in history, of course. I want to say that at moments like these, Canadians know how to fight to the end and never try, even if they lose, they try to fight to the end. The only time I remember was the Canada Cup, when the Canadians scored the eighth goal, maybe the sixth, the fifth, the seventh, they gave up playing. That's the only time in my memory when the Canadians didn't play to the end. Now you mentioned Paul Henderson. Are you still in touch with the Canadian players? Do you sometimes still see Henderson or Phil Esposito or someone else from the Canadian games, the Canadian team? Yes, I go to the Hockey Hall of Fame every year. You know that I was selected for the Hockey Hall of Fame. The only hockey player who didn't play in the NHL, well, after me, they also picked Karlamov, Yakushev. So I was the first one in 89 who hadn't played in NHL, and supposedly I wasn't supposed to be in the museum, but I was in the museum, and then back in 89, it was quite an experience for me that I was selected. So every year I come to Canada to the Hockey Hall of Fame. When they pick inductees and I meet hockey players of course especially players from the 72 series then the hockey players when we marked uh, 45 years we invited Team Canada to visit us President Vladimir Putin hosted them they came to Sochi Stapleton came, a lot of hockey players actually. Frank Mahovlich came. That's a lot of players from 72. And we are on best terms now, the friend list. Uh, hopefully next year we'll have such get-togethers too. It's interesting that you mentioned you were the first to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame without having played professionally, at least not in the NHL. Why did you never play there? I heard that in 1983 the Montreal Canadiens invited you to join the team. Did the politics play a role in your decision to decline? Why did you not go? I was ready. Why? Because by that time, I was about done playing, and I wanted to finish, even though I was 32. It was early, but I have been world champion 10 times. The 11th time wouldn't have made a difference. Four Olympics? How many more do you need? I wanted a new challenge, challenge that a player of my level needs, to go back to the salt mines and toll for hockey. I didn't win a single Stanley Cup, so there was an offer. Montreal was a good team. They picked me in a draft. And my wife agreed. We wanted to go. But the general manager came, Savar, told me he came to Suslov. Suslov, he was like uh, the ideologist of the Communist Party. He said, my father was a big military commander and uh, he couldn't let me go. And I didn't want to go to North America, although nobody asked me about it. I didn't even know about that meeting. It was only five years later that Savar told me. My father's rank was just a major, not a general or something. So they came up with the idea, and nobody let me go, and uh, I finished playing. Wow. What a shame that this was the worst point in East-West relations. And was it because of that decision that you decided to retire so early? Because that was it. I had nothing left to win. I've won everything. What else was out there? In essence, 13 uh, Russian uh, Soviet Stanley Cups, 10 World Cups. No one has won that many and no one has won more. Four Olympics, three gold, one silver. How many more do you want? There's no incentive left. Uh, you know, you have been playing for 15 years now. You need an incentive, a challenge, because hockey is hard work. And to have an incentive, it means you have have to practice until you sweat your guts out, practice away from home. My wife says, you don't leave at home as it is. She also had a hand in encouraging me to go, but I do know that in the NHL, you leave at home, you go back home. We didn't have that. We lived in training camp all the time. So it was a challenge for me here, and uh, I would have to prove all over again who I was. 
By the way, Patrick Roy actually said, thank you very much for not coming. I started playing for Montreal, otherwise they wouldn't have taken me. <laughs> Now tell me, what did you feel when you went to Canada as a coach of the National Olympic team at the 2010 Winter Olympics? That was certainly a new challenge, was it not? Well, it was a new challenge for me as a coach, but I was the goalie coach and I certainly, well, cheered for my team naturally. Well, coming to Canada is always a great joy for me because it's the homeland of hockey and I always come to Canada with a good feeling because I have so many friends in Canada. I feel very comfortable when I come because you meet your friends, you remember where you played in Vancouver there, in Montreal, in Winnipeg, practically everywhere I played in Canada, in all cities. And so there is something to remember. Toronto and a lot of hockey players, basically for me it was always a joy. The Olympics uh, are special, it's a special competition. Now, you received a Canadian award that, as I recall, had never been granted to a Russian citizen before. I believe it's called the Meritorious Service Medal. Not sure what that is in Russian. Now, tell us the story behind that. Of course, it was a surprise for me because I know that in Russia, no one has this Canadian order. And when they gave me that award, I came to Ottawa at the highest level. So the governor general, yes, I think so, uh, in Ottawa, they decorated me with a soda. And I'm proud because I'm the only hockey player and not just a hockey player, a Russian in general. Because always when you get awarded an order from another country, it shows that you did something that not only your fans liked, but also the fans that were rooting against you. It's a special merit, so I'm very proud that I have such an order. And I wear it, put it on my jacket along with my highest orders of the Soviet Union and uh, Russia. I remember you telling me some time ago the story of a young Canadian boy who told his mother when he heard you were flying to Russia, oh, do the Russians know him too? The boy thought you were a Canadian hero. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. That was very nice. Well, despite the fact that you're not Canadian, you are considered a national treasure of Canada. And is proud of its relations with you, and it's a great honor for us to have you here on our podcast. Now, tell us a little about your charitable work. What you do with Serba, what you do with Canada in general. Well, the most important thing is that, you see, at one time I became, um, I saw when the Soviet Union collapsed and our kids know neither the national anthem nor the flag. And I think our kids should be patriots. They should play against foreign teams. I invited teams from Canada, the United States, uh, Finland, Sweden, and it was very important for me to have our kids play international games. It's one thing to play domestically, but it's another thing to play abroad. You represent your country. Well, that's why I created the Vladislav Trujak Foundation. And then it came in handy when I started working in the State Duma. Because I get a lot of requests. We help a lot of children, sick kids. We buy sports equipment. Well, uh, everything that is needed for hockey, for whatever appeals, and so on. And so Serba, uh, almost all the ambassadors and the Canada-Russia Friendship Society were there with me. And in fact, a lot of people were there. And I'm very glad that we've been raising money together somehow to help kids to play hockey and to help kids who are sick and to buy sports equipment and so on and so forth. So I'm very glad that I have this opportunity to do this kind of charity work. We have done a lot of good things over the past 20 years. Can, can you believe it's been 20 years since we first held the charity auction? 
20 years ago. And I take this opportunity, Nathan, to say a big thank you to you, my friend. You and I have always been the MCs of that function, and I think we will continue again in December. We're doing a good thing. Just take this one thing. We have this girl. She was born without hands, and she does everything with her feet. And she paints pictures there. But she lives in a small house. Her dad left them. And so, of course, she needs care. And we helped her to get into college. She's very good at her studies. This girl is just extraordinary. She paints real pictures with her feet, portraits, landscapes. And so I sell them at auctions, and I give all the money raised personally to her and to her mother, so that she can live on that money. And we bought her a nice refrigerator for their home. We replaced all the equipment so that she can live decently because she's great. A real strong-willed person. I mentioned her as an example. Yes, I remember her well and I remember her paintings at the auction last year and the year before. Tell us what inspired you to finally get involved in politics. Could you tell us about some of the causes that brought you there and what you're doing in the Duma today? Yes, people ask me. I'm in politics to help people, you know, because when I'm on the Committee on Sports and Youth Affairs, it's building stadiums, it's uh, as much as possible to get people involved in sports and fitness, to get people engaged in them, in a healthy lifestyle. That's me in politics. And I didn't really want to, frankly, because I was coaching the Chicago Blackhawks then. I was a coach, a goalie coach. I had good opportunities in the NHL, and I worked there for practice practically 12 years. But my spouse said, you go away all the time and I really want you to be home more often. And she said, come on, here you can help people. Yes, you can help people. Not like your small foundation there, but do it at the government level. But I want to say that the law on sports that is in effect in all of Russia today, my committee and my assistants did it. We made this law and it now works to the fullest. It is said that Canadians and Russians are very different, but at the same time, there are a lot of similarities. Is it fair to say that hockey players, regardless of where they come from, have unique features in common? What can you say about Russians and Canadians? Well, the first thing is that we play the best hockey, both Canada and Russia. And always when there is a tournament, no matter where we are in the charts, always Canada-Russia games are special games, both at youth, junior, at any level. Canada and Russia are always a big event. And secondly, we have very similar nature because we are northern countries. We even have a border across the Arctic. And we have lots of similarities. We have a lot of people that live there too. Too. A lot of Ukrainians live there that came from the Soviet Union. Yes, in this northern region. So I think uh, in that sense, we are very close. Yes, that's for sure. Vladislav, tell us what made you a leader? My upbringing, my upbringing in the family helped me. I was brought up in a family and in a team because the team really gave me these qualities of a leader, qualities of a self-disciplined person, qualities of a responsible person, that I have never been late in life. I was never late for a single practice when I was playing, over 21 years. I'm very disciplined. I'm never late for meetings. I like to do everything professionally. If I do something, I try to do it at the highest level, and hockey gave me all that. Can you tell our audience about your plans for the future? You are 69 today. What can we expect from Vladislav Tretiak going forward?
I want to go to the State Duma for another five years, as, as I still have a lot of issues regarding building hockey arenas. But if Canada has 3,000 hockey arenas and Russia has only 600, can you imagine how far behind you we are? So America has 2,000 rinks. Our pro capita statistics lag even behind the Finns, the Swedes and the Czechs, who have more per capita. But if we want to keep up the high standards of hockey we have to build arenas, and I want that, I'm going to the Duma to make the program as wide-sweeping as possible, to have as many hockey arenas as possible, because hockey is a very popular sport here in Russia. That's the main thing. And the second thing, because naturally my grandson plays hockey and I want to help him, and I also want to do a lot of good for the charity foundation, and I help people in different areas. I get enormous pleasure when I can help someone, sick people, people in need. I give gifts to war veterans all the time, and and lots and lots to people in need out there. But if I can help at least one person, I'm happy about it. And of course, I want to be healthy, to think about myself a little, so that my health keeps up. But, uh, Canadians have stated openly that it is not without trepidation that they have noticed another Tretiak in the wings and on the ice. What can you tell us about your grandson, Maxime? Maxim has been in training since he was five. He's been coming to my school since he was five. I had a school in Canada, you know. I gave master classes at my school in Montreal for about 20 years. Also in America, I did it in Detroit Lakes. There are a lot of hockey players that I worked with. They now play in the NHL. They're my trainees. And of course, Max was always with me. I wanted him to be a goalie, for sure. And now he, of course, uh, Max is over six feet now. He plays in Sochi, a good boy. And when he first came to Canada, he was 15 years old. There was already a newspaper line in Canada saying that a new Tretiak is in goal. Tretiak is in goal again. And everyone has a special attitude towards him. So he likes playing in Canada, just like me. That's why he's playing for Sochi this year. And he is a professional already. And he has a contract there. We hope everything will work out well. Well, we wish him the best and success everywhere, except in games against the Canadian national team. <laughs> Hey, let him play well everywhere. My guest today has been Distinguished Master of Sport of the USSR, three-time Olympic hockey champion in 72, 76, and 84, multiple winner of World Ice Hockey Championships, and greatest hockey player of the 20th century, as per the IIHF, Mr. Vladislav Tretiak. Thank you so very much, Vladislav, for your time today. Thank you for coming. I also thank you for the great interview. I'm very happy to see you as my friend. But I would like to say a big hello to all Canadians, that they take care of themselves with this pandemic, and to wish all of us peace on Earth and as many spectacular games as possible between Canada and Russia. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vladislav, and goodbye. You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.